This is Reverend Kirk Lawton, minister at Ocean Lakes Family Campground, and this is our podcast. Our prayer is that this message may enrich your life as you find God especially meaningful to you. Thank you for worshiping with us. In one of his many popular books, Max Licato tells an insightful story about a group of mountain climbers who set out to scale a large mountain in Europe. The view gave a breathtaking uh, peak of snow-capped rocks, and on clear days, the top of the mountain reigned as king on the horizon. Its white tip jutted into the blue sky, inviting admiration and offering inspiration. On clear days, the hikers made the greatest progress. As the lofty peak of the mountain ahead stood like a compelling goal toward which they all moved, eyes looked upward, the walk was brisk, cooperation with fellow climbers was unselfish, they all looked toward the top, struggling together like an athletic team, pooling their resources to gain the victory. But there were other days when they could not see the top of the mountain. Cloud covering hid the blue sky with a drab gray ceiling which blocked the view of the summit. On these days, the climb became much more difficult. Eyes were downward. Thoughts were inward. The goal was not in view. Tempers were short. Weariness came more quickly. Complaints with fellow members, fellow climbers, flowed more freely. Aren't we as human beings sort of like that? As long as we can see our dream, when the goal is in sight, when the skies are blue, there's no mountain too high for us to climb. But take away our vision, block our view of how things are going to turn out, let clouds of discouragement come over us, and the picture changes drastically for us. Here we are on a glorious Easter morning. We know what has happened. Christ is alive. Death could not keep its prey. The tragedy of Good Friday has turned into the triumph of Easter Sunday. But try to put yourself in the places of those followers of Jesus on that day in between. They didn't know what we know today. How was it for them between tragedy and triumph. Ask John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, about this. Yes, of course, now Jesus loved them all, even Judas, but there was something special about this man, John. He was the one at the cross to whom Jesus gave responsibility of caring for Mary, his mother. He was the only one of the twelve who had stayed with Jesus right up to the end at the cross. Oh, maybe others like Peter had followed Jesus afar off. But here was John right there at the foot of the cross. Could there have been any greater tragedy for John than a dead Jesus? Three years earlier, John had turned his back on his career and had begun to follow this Nazarene carpenter around. Only a few days ago, John's heart had swelled with joy over parade in which Jesus and his disciples had entered Jerusalem. Now how quickly things had changed. Those who called him king on Sunday had called for his death on Friday. 
shouts of Hosanna had turned to shouts of crucify him. And that's exactly what they had done. There was no way John could know on that Saturday what we know today. Sure, he heard Jesus' words, but everything seemed to run together now in his head with all those feelings of grief over the loss of a loved one, anger at those who had killed him, new responsibility in caring for Mary, uncertainty as to what the future would hold for him. All the other disciples had scattered. It was Saturday, not Easter Sunday. John would later confess, and he would write in his gospel, that he did not know that the scripture said Jesus would rise to life. You see that in John chapter 20, verse 9. So all this brings to light something we often overlook about John. On Saturday, the day between tragedy and triumph, John was still around. He hadn't gone anywhere. Why? Well, maybe he was still in shock from the event of the crucifixion. Maybe he lingered because he loved Jesus so much. You know, you don't abandon a friend when that friend's dead. Like two stray dogs walking on a highway, when one is killed by a car, the other one doesn't run away. He stays there with his companion. On a much higher level, John wanted to be there. John always wanted to be close to Jesus in the upper room, in the Garden of Gethsemane, at the foot of the cross. Did John always understand Jesus? Oh, no. Was John always perfect in his love for Jesus? Absolutely not. But did he leave Jesus? No. Now, what about us today or yesterday, the day between tragedy and triumph in our lives? How do we react when we can't see the top of the mountain ahead? There are those people who turn sour, bitter, and allow their hearts to become hardened toward God all around them. They're still in their Saturday and have not let God work His Sunday miracle in their lives. These are the people for whom verses like Romans 8.28 are just words. In everything, God works for the good of those who love Him. And that means He's working for the good in tumors and tests and temptations, and tempers, and terminations. He's even working for the good, and hospital stays, and chemo, and radiation, and a prison term, and lawsuits against you, and divorce papers, and the loss of your money in the stock market, and a pandemic. But you say, preacher, I don't see how God's going to bless me in my situation. It's so bad. You don't see right. That's because it's Saturday, your day between tragedy and triumph. You need to do what John did. Don't leave God. Hang around. Sunday's coming. I'd like to read some Bible verses to you to tell about what happened on that Saturday before the resurrection on Sunday. Yes, I would like to read those verses, but they aren't there in the Bible. Yes, we just have to wait till Sunday to learn the resurrection victory. And waiting surely is hard, though, isn't it? One lady, a dear lady who attended our services for many years at Ocean Lake, Cheryl Yost, she passed away and went on to heaven, but I called her our poet laureate for many years. She wrote numbers of poems while she was here at Ocean Lakes. And one of them she wrote was called God's Waiting Room. These are her words. I know you're weary of waiting, 
The road has been long and rough. You're feeling this is not what you had in mind. You've waited long enough. It's then we try to push open doors the Lord decided to close. We pry at the locks, manipulate plans, deciding it's not what he chose. God uses disappointments to lead us closer to him, to work deep within our soul, to gain renewed perspective on our situation, his waiting room to make us whole. To us, it's a horrible experience to suffer, to him an appointment divine. He set us aside to cultivate patience. He'll rescue us at the right time. The world doesn't need busier people, people busy or smarter. It needs those who are deep. Deep people always have a ministry to share, extending periods of waiting to weep. The Lord doesn't cultivate that kind of person in a hurry. He's not running a race. They're planted then weeded by heavenly discipline, grown in the garden of grace. So if you're waiting, remember God's method to prepare special people for him is to draw them aside, grow them in his love, then send them out, our souls, to win. For exceptional work is always preceded by extended waiting and care. So rest in his arm. Your time will come. Be patient and stay right there. If God can change the life of a man like John through a tragedy, could it just be possible he can use a tragedy in your life to change your life? It may still be Saturday in your life, but if it is, you're only one day away from a resurrection. 11-year-old Sandy sensed that her daddy was troubled as he tucked her in bed one night. Then her daddy told Sandy that his friend, teenage daughter, Tammy, was losing all of her hair. Sandy then looked at her daddy and asked, Daddy, can I pray for my friend Tammy? Oh, yes, said her daddy. That'd be fine. And so the little girl, Sandy, prayed, Dear Jesus, please hold Tammy's hair on her head. The doctors tried to do just that, but nothing worked. Tammy had a rare, incurable disease. A few weeks later, Sandy asked her daddy how Tammy was doing. Her daddy then had to tell her that Tammy had an incurable disease. And then spontaneously, Sandy reached out and took her daddy's hand, and she closed her eyes, and she prayed this second prayer. Dear Jesus, if you won't hold Tammy's hair on her head, would you please hold Tammy? Then tearfully, Sandy's daddy realized that sometimes God doesn't move mountains. He moves us. Sometimes I have this haunting feeling in the back of my mind that many of us who gather in glorious Easter worship services like this one today may be out of touch with the feelings of so many people all around us we come together in places of worship, whether it's out on the beach as we did earlier this morning, or maybe in small country churches or in grand cathedrals. We sing joyfully the praises of our risen Lord. This is fine for many. But what about those in our midst who, like John, are still between tragedy and triumph in their lives? 
Maybe today you are one of that multitude of hurting souls who sing the hymns of Resurrection Day, but you still feel in your heart that you're closer to tragedy than you are to triumph. Could God do something for you like he did for John? Well, what did he do for John, you asked? Well, back up with me for just a minute. Very early on that Sunday morning, both Peter and John were given the news by Mary. The news was this. The body of Jesus is missing. She thought some enemies of Jesus had come and had stolen his body from the tomb. So instantly, Peter and John hurried to the place where Jesus was buried. Peter, you remember, was usually the impulsive one, the first to speak. He was the leader of the pack. But on this occasion, John outran Peter and got to the tomb first. What he saw was so stunning until he froze at the entrance. Then Peter arrived and went into the tomb. What was it that John saw that so paralyzed him? He saw strips of linen cloth and the piece of cloth that had been used to cover Jesus' face. This was rolled up and in a place by itself. You can read about that in John chapter 20. What was so unusual about that? Well, for one thing, the burial wraps had not been ripped off and thrown away. They were still in the original condition, undisturbed. Think for just a minute. If the friends of Jesus had come and removed his body, wouldn't they have taken the body with the wrap still around him? Suppose the enemies of Jesus had stolen the body, wouldn't they have done the same? Whoever stole the body, why would they be so careful as to dispose of the burial wrappings in such a precise and orderly manner? There then is a significant statement in John chapter 20, verse 8. The disciple who got there first, when he saw it, he believed. If God could use something as unusual as a discarded burial wrapping to enable John to believe, couldn't he use something in your life today to bless you? Something you wouldn't ordinarily think of as a blessing? Through the rags of death, John saw the power of life. You suppose God could do the same for you today? Could he take what you consider to be tragedy and turn it into triumph? One of our regular church attenders here at Ocean Lakes, for many years he's moved on now to his original home in North Carolina. He let me read a book which recounts the memoirs of a favorite childhood friend of his, a remarkable lady who was from Lattimore, North Carolina. In her book entitled Breath, Martha Mason told of her journey through life after being stricken at a young age with polio, leaving her the, to live the rest of her life in an iron lung. While many others might give up on life and turn sour and bitter, cursing God and making life miserable for all around them, this gifted lady followed a different path. In spite of many setbacks, having, including having to care for her own mother during years before her mother's death, Martha Mason, with the aid of helpers, of course, found a meaning and purpose in life which enabled her to graduate from high school, 
and later from Wake Forest University, graduating summa cum laude, and all the way to her death a few years ago, Martha Mason continued to bless the lives of countless people, even as she blessed my life through as I read her book. This then brings us back to my question. Could, not, could God do something similar in your life, even when you are between tragedy and triumph? Oh, I'm sure he could. But you need to do what John did. Don't leave. Hang around. The Bible says that in everything, God works for the good of those who love him. John's love for Jesus was not based on his complete understanding, nor should ours be. But in everything? Okay, remove that word and replace it with your own tragedy. How would Romans 8.28 read in your life? In hospital stays, God is working for the good. In your continuing battle with an addiction, God is working for the good. In a money crunch, God's working for the good. In your disappointment with a friend, God is working for the good. And the loss of someone very special to you, God is working for the good. In burial clothes, God is working for the good. In an iron lung, God is working for the good. Yes, as hard as it may be to believe, those who love God will find in everything that God is working for the good. And even when you are between tragedy and triumph, you can be only hours away from the victory that he gives. With this assurance, we can reaffirm with that hymn by Bill and Gloria Gaither, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. God, thank you so much for the fact that you are with us and you've given us the full picture. We know that Jesus is alive and because he is, we can face tomorrow or whatever comes our way because you're working for the good on our behalf. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.